Would you pray with me? Jesus, thank you for this morning. Thanks for the opportunity to be here worshiping even at a distance with the people that you've given us to love and be loved by. Lord, we come to you humbly this morning because we know that we are, through our sin and our fallenness and our brokenness, we are contributors to a world filled with chaos. And Lord, we, we come to you confessing that you give us opportunities, you give us glimpses, you give us these chances to bring some of your kingdom to earth and we miss them. We don't see them or we ignore them on purpose. Lord, we're broken and we need you so much. And so as we look into your word this morning, as we study Esther and, and, and the choices that she made and the courage that she had, Lord, would you help us to take that courage too? Would you help us to lay down at your feet everything that would prevent us from doing as you ask, from going where you call, and help us to step into the role that we were made for. Help us to become the people that you had in mind when you thought us up. Help us be exactly who we were made to be. Be with us, Lord, and we pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, in whom we put our hope. Amen. We are in week three of our series on Esther. And as I mentioned last week, this series builds on itself. So it's really important that you hear the previous weeks first. So if you can go back and listen to week one, if you haven't already, you should do that right now. It's online church, nobody cares. Um, and, and I don't even care about week two. Just, just make sure that you have the plot overview in week one so that the text is more meaningful, meaningful for you today. So our text today is almost the same as it was last week. We're in the fourth chapter of the book of Esther. And just a little refresher on where we are in our dramatic plot line. We have King Xerxes, who has just finished a seven-day drinking party for him and his buddies. And on the last day, he demands that his wife, Queen Vashti, show up to the party wearing nothing but her royal crown. And of course, she refuses. And so he deposes her and he replaces her with the very young, very secretly Jewish Queen Esther. Meanwhile, the, the villain of our story, Haman, has tricked the king into signing this death decree that will annihilate and kill and destroy all the Jewish people in Persia. And Esther's cousin, Mordecai, who raised her, hears about this. And so he asks Esther to, uh, to, to tell the king that she's Jewish and to beg for the lives of her people. And Esther is initially hesitant. Remember from last week that the, there was one law about approaching the king. If you did it without him asking first, then you were killed on the spot. And the king hasn't summoned Esther for a full 30 days. And so then Mordecai gives his famous speech, you know, perhaps you were made queen for such a time as this. And so today we're going to be looking at Esther's response, just a few verses with some overlap from last week. This is Esther chapter 4, beginning in verse 11. This is the NRSV translation, if that's helpful to you. Esther says to Mordecai, All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law. All alike are to be put to death. Only if the king holds out the golden scepter to someone, may that person live. I myself have not been called to come into the king for 30 days. When they told Mordecai what Esther had said, Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, do not think that the king's palace will help you escape any more than all of the other Jews. For if you keep silence at such a time as this, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. And who knows? 
Perhaps you have come to your royal dignity for such a time as this. And then Esther said in reply to Mordecai, Go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf and neither eat nor drink for three days, night or day. I and my maids will also fast as you do. After that, I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. This is God's word. I did something when I was in high school that I've actually never told anybody. You guys will be the first. Uh, I had two best friends in high school. We'll call them Jen and Joe. We were like a reverse Harry Potter, you know, two girls and a guy. And I had just become a Christian toward the end of my senior year, and my two friends had not. And so they still wanted to go underage drinking up at my grandparents' cottage at Geneva-on-the-Lake, Ohio, in the dead of winter when there were no adults to find us out. And I didn't know how to tell them that I didn't really want to do this anymore because I was afraid. I was afraid of, of, of them thinking I was judging them. Um, I was afraid that maybe they wouldn't want to be my friend anymore. And, and I cherished them because they were the first people to be kind to me when I moved to that school. So when they asked me to, to sneak the keys out of my mom's house so that we could go up to the cottage, I, I chose this very cowardly solution instead of telling them the truth about how I felt what I did was I grabbed the wrong set of keys. And so we set off on our two hour drive from Beaver County, Pennsylvania to Geneva on the Lake, Ohio. And the whole time I know that when we get there, we are not getting into the cottage. And I know we're gonna have to turn right back around. And, and I knew that they would be frustrated with me because I'd grabbed the wrong keys, but I knew they would forgive me too because I was Kaylee. I was their friend who stole her mom's keys. But I wasn't sure that they would forgive me if suddenly I was Kaylee who didn't steal her mom's keys and who didn't want to drink and who wanted to go, you know, to the church youth group. And, and, and so I lied. I lied. And we spent four hours freezing our tails off in the back of Joe's car because his heater was busted. I, I wasn't sure where I belonged yet. I mean, I was such a new Christian that, that that community didn't quite feel like home yet, but my old community suddenly didn't feel like home either. And so for a while, I just lived with one foot in each camp, you know, which worked, I suppose, uh, for the purpose that I did it. I still had my old friends as well as my new friends, but, but it also taught me to be duplicitous, having one foot in each camp, being my Christian self here and my old self there, and as a result, not always knowing which was which. In this moment in her life, Esther is facing an identity crisis. She has lived her whole life in Persia, raised by her cousin Mordecai because she lost her parents in the exile, and she and Mordecai have completely assimilated into the Persian culture. So much so that, that their Jewish heritage is almost unrecognizable in them. I mean, she's a public figure, and people couldn't figure it out. And Mordecai was only found out because he mentioned it to some of the other guards. And so while they are a part of the Jewish remnant, they are not particularly Jewish and in fact, up to this point in the book, Mordecai has ordered Esther to hide her Jewishness at all costs. So here she is, the secretly Jewish queen of Persia, living as royalty in a pagan empire, wife of a pagan king served by a pagan viceroy who has planned to annihilate her people. And so Esther must now choose. Who is she going to be? Will she continue living as a pagan to keep herself alive? Or will she begin to live as who she truly is? It's a defining moment 
for her. And, and it will have enormous consequences, not just for Esther and for the Jews living in Susa, but for, for the Jewish people all the way back in Jerusalem. Their fate, too, hangs in the balance of Esther's decision. We all have these defining moments, these moments in our lives where we do what we know we ought to do or where we play it safe, where we literally protect ourselves right out of our God-given calling. I want us to look at two characteristics of Esther's defining moment because I think all of us can glean a little wisdom from it as we face defining moments in our own lives. So first, defining moments require preparation. Esther takes the time to prepare. She, she makes her decision, if I perish, I perish. She makes her decision courageously, but I want to point out she does not make her decision recklessly. She doesn't charge into this head first. She doesn't do it on a whim. And, and I think, you know, I think some commentators actually treat her unjustly for this, for the hesitation that she expresses to Mordecai. But, but we should keep in mind that Jesus himself, on the night of his crucifixion, expresses hesitation. He asked his father, is there any other way for your will to be accomplished? Now, Jesus knows what he has to do, but that doesn't mean he wants to. And it doesn't mean that he feels no fear. So, so even he checks in with his father and asks, hey, is, is this really the only way? And then he, like Esther, prepares for what he knows he has to do. Before she even says those famous words, if I perish, I perish, she instructs Mordecai to hold a, a Jewish nationwide fast, a three-day, no food, no water fast, which would have been incredibly challenging, especially the water part. And, and we can assume that the purpose of this fast was intended to be a fast before the God of her ancestors to, to petition for his favor uh, because there would be no other reason, no other earthly reason for her to intentionally weaken herself for three days before approaching the king. And so Esther prepares. And, and I also just love her choice of preparation because it is decidedly Jewish. We don't have enough evidence to, to know if she was a practicing Jew particularly up to this point, but, but once she decides to tie her lot to that of the Jewish people, she prepares in this traditionally Jewish way. She fasts and she asks other people to fast with her and for her to prepare for what she must do. Defining moments require preparation often in the context of community. You know, you, you, don't, you don't decide to run a marathon and then just sit on the couch and never train. But for some reason, we do this all the time spiritually. You know, someone, someone says, God, I'm going to commit to be a missionary for you in Colombia. But then they don't learn Spanish and they don't study the culture and history and they don't prepare a budget for themselves based on local cost of living. And they go before they have resources and community and prayer coverage and preparation. And now I'm not discouraging you from going and being a missionary in Colombia, you should absolutely do that if it's what God has laid on your heart. All I'm saying is that deciding to go is really only the first step. If you are in earnest, now comes the preparation. Deciding to go as hard as it may be might actually be the easiest part. The preparation is what takes perseverance. The preparation is what takes courage and commitment because the day you decide to go is exciting, but the days that you prepare, those are the grind. Esther takes the time to prepare for what she knows she must do, and it's not a particularly fun preparation. So first, defining moments require preparation. Second, defining moments require us to surrender the outcomes to God. 
Esther makes this choice. She makes this choice to demonstrate her faithfulness to God, not vice versa, not to force God to demonstrate his faithfulness to her. I'm gonna unpack that because this is really important. I remember my, my last year of teaching high school history, I was teaching three block classes of 38 students in a room with 38, uh, 30, 35 desks. Um, and I say the word room loosely because I was actually in portable 87. That was a new concept to me. Uh, I'm from Pittsburgh and you can't have kids walking to and from classes in a snowstorm, so no portables there. And my portable had no blackboard, no whiteboard. I had to barter away a filing cabinet just to get an overhead projector, which is an ancient piece of machinery to begin with. And we had a, a fire ant infestation the first nine weeks. I mean, every day I went to work, it just, it sucked a little bit more of my soul out every day, like the, the lowest setting of the machine in Princess Bride. Most Mondays, I would quit my job in my heart on the way to school. And then by last bell, uh, I'd decide to stay because then I could go to Buffalo Wild Wings and watch the Steeler highlights. I'd recently started attending a church in Sanford where I lived at the time after, you know, a long and dramatic absence from God. And, and one day I'm sitting in church and it occurs to me, I should quit my job. I mean, this, this can't be what God wants for me. And I know I'll, I might lose my health insurance and I know I might not be able to pay rent, but if I just do it, if I just quit, if I just take the leap of faith, I know that God is gonna provide. And you know what happened the very next month? I lost my health insurance and I couldn't pay my rent. I quit my teaching job, not to demonstrate, you know, my faithfulness to God, but to demand that God demonstrate his faithfulness to me. God hadn't failed me. He never asked me to quit my job. That was my decision. I made that solely based on my own emotions and I did not prepare for it. I didn't fast. I didn't pray. I didn't seek counsel. I didn't even do like the most basic preparation of building up a little savings before I jumped. I just did it. I wasn't taking a risk for God. I was taking a risk for me, and then expecting God to prove his faithfulness by bailing me out of my own self-inflicted predicament. We can't, we can't render every risk that we take as service unto God and then accuse him of failure when he doesn't reward our recklessness. I would go so far as to say that I don't think Esther is actually expecting God to save her, hoping certainly, but, but not expecting. She doesn't say, if I perish, I perish, because she's so optimistic that, that the king is going to spare her life. D.A. Mortar writes, if I perish, I perish, isn't confidence in success. It's confidence in placing herself in the hands of a loving God, uttered by someone who knows that martyrdom for her people may still be the outcome. We cannot know in advance what our commitment will cost us. Esther doesn't charge in because she's so sure of herself. She limps in, weak from dehydration, expecting to be killed, but knowing that it would be better to die as a servant of God than to go on living as a coward, always in hiding, always afraid of being found out. Esther takes this risk having accepted the reality that she will most likely die, but she refuses to make her life or death a litmus test for the faithfulness of God. Like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego before the fiery furnace, Esther basically declares, God can save me, but even if he won't, I will serve him still. Esther does what is faithful, but then she surrenders the outcomes to God. She doesn't force 
God to prove that he is faithful by rescuing her. You know, I think sometimes we, we find ourselves in these sticky situations and then we start to pray, God, if you love me, you're going to get me out of this, right? Like in, in human relationships, we call that codependency. You know, if, if, if you love me, you'll do it. And, and we can't manipulate God like that. We can't force his hand. If we, if we try to, if, if we use our fast as a hunger strike, the reality is, is that we may likely starve. Because listen, God doesn't need to prove his commitment to us. He already did. God already did. He doesn't need to prove his commitment because he already has through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ and the forgiveness of the unforgivable in us. I don't need God to, to save me from some temporary pain to prove that he's faithful because he's already saved me from eternal pain by the shedding of his blood in the place of mine. What greater proof of love do we need? We can't force the outcomes. We can't force God to do what we want by being faithful. We can only be faithful in response to what he has already done. So Esther prepares, but then Esther surrenders the outcomes to God. Now, I do want to point out here, this doesn't mean that Esther's actions don't matter at all. They absolutely do. Our actions matter. Esther's choices, they matter enormously. Her, her decisions are going to have a material effect on the entire remnant of Israel. You know, surrendering outcomes doesn't mean that what we choose doesn't matter. If, if she had said no, if she'd made a different choice, if she'd said, no, you know, Mordecai is right. Deliverance for the Jews would have arisen from another place, but maybe not for the Jews in Susa. Maybe instead of, of this book that's this incredible victory for nearly every Jewish person where they live, it would have been an incredible slaughter and nearly every Jewish person would have died. And the remnant would have lived on only through a small handful or, or, or maybe just a single person, maybe a single queen who was carried away as plunder. J.A. Moyder writes, the book of Esther does not deny the value of prayer. Instead, it stresses that the people of God frequently have to both trust God and to take seriously their own role in putting right the things about which they pray. Our lives are filled with defining moments where we have to take seriously our role to put right the things about which we pray. Our lives are filled with defining moments where we have to choose to live behind our mask or, or risk to live as we truly are. I don't know what decision God has put in front of you today that, that, that might become a defining moment for you. You know, maybe it's the decision about whether or not Jesus is real. If he is who he said he was, that is a defining moment that defining moment happened for me in a little chapel in Beaver Falls, Pennsylvania, when I finally realized that, that, that God was real, that he was listening. But, but that defining moment, while it looms large in the landscape of my conversion, is only one of many, many defining moments that would come to actually define my character. Your defining moment today might be the choice to, to cheat on a test or your taxes, or your spouse, or the choice to have a tough conversation with someone who you really love and don't want to confront. It might be the choice to, 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 to take the first steps toward coming out of hiding from behind this, this persona you've created for yourself, this perfect Christian caricature when on the inside you are dying. 
when I first darkened the doorstep of Regroup, our, our recovery ministry, I had been a Christian for many years, but I was in full-on moral crisis. I was in a highly inappropriate relationship. I was living this double life. You know, one person with my Christian friends, one with my drinking buddies. I had one foot in and one foot out. I was 16 again, deciding whether or not I was going to steal my grandparents' keys. And it was killing me from the inside out. I knew I had to make a choice. And the first time in regroup, when I actually came clean, when I actually told the truth about what I had been doing, it, it, it felt like it took all the good out of me. It was agony. It felt, it felt like dying. And it was. It was the death of my false identity. Who I was had to perish if who I am was to ever come alive. New birth, new birth is only the beginning. It, it is followed by a lifetime of defining moments, daily, ordinary, yet sacred moments where we decide to live as who we were or as who we were meant to be. This really beautiful thing happens at the end of chapter four, the beginning of chapter five. Up to this point in the book, Esther has been known only for her beauty or for her submission to the instructions of men. But then at the end of chapter four, the last verse reads, so Mordecai went away and carried out all of Esther's instructions or the NRSV, which we read earlier. Mordecai went away and did everything that Esther ordered him, that she ordered him. You know, up to this point in the book, Esther has been taking orders, not giving them. But then here at the end of chapter four, Mordecai went away and did everything Esther ordered him. And then in chapter five, verse one, on the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the palace in front of the king's hall. And when he saw Queen Esther, he was pleased with her and held out the gold scepter in his hand. If you're not paying attention, you can miss it. It is one of the most beautiful verses in the entire book. In, in the first four chapters, with one exception, she has been Hadassah the orphan or Esther who follows the instructions of men. But here... Once her mind is made up, once she chooses to be courageous, even if it kills her, here she is called Queen Esther. When he saw Queen Esther standing in the court, he was pleased. And for the rest of the book, anytime the king addresses her, she is Queen Esther. What is your request, Queen Esther? Up to half the kingdom I'll give you. Xerxes asked, Queen Esther, who is the man who dared do such a thing? Haman stayed behind to beg Queen Esther for his life. She has made her choice, and as a result, she becomes who she was meant to be. On the third day, Queen Esther put on her royal robes and she saved the lives of her people. And 500 years later, another king would be born. And on the third day, he would put on his royal robes and he too would save the lives of his people. You were meant for something more than a life in hiding. So put on your royal robes and get to work. <laughs>